the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The Word to Stand On for Life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. It's Tuesday. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand Up for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions, questions about anything going on in your life, whatever is on your heart. You provide the phone call, 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And as always, if you are driving in your car, The safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, um, Tuesday, nothing going on, so let me get right to questions that have been sent in. Our first one comes from our email inbox. This one is from Rick. He says, Hi, Pastor On. Is there such a thing as discernment? What happens if the Lord told me something in a dream about my wife? And I told her, and it came true. Uh, what is it called when we have discernment about staying away from a place or person? Is that called discernment? Rick, this is a tough question. And in fact, let me say, I spent um, most of our two hours in our Saturday um, pastor's discipleship class this past Saturday talking about this very thing. Um, discernment is not a gift of the Spirit, and a lot of times you'll say, people say, well, well, I have the gift of discernment. We all have discernment. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth lives in us. And if we are men and women who take seriously the, the charge to, to study our Bibles, to, to, to rightly divide the Word of God, um, then we all have discernment. Um, we don't have to be fooled by anyone because the Bible tells us what to do. There, Additionally, um, there are spiritual gifts, words of wisdom or words of knowledge that God sometime will share with us, and it will give us discernment about an issue or something that we're facing. Now, you asked, Rick, what if the Lord told you something in a dream about your wife, um, and you told her, and it came true? That's not necessarily a, a discernment. That's simply... Um, it's one of two things. And I'm going to be very candid with you, Rick, so I don't know you. This isn't personal. But 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 one, it's either the enemy talking to you. I, I am a dreamer. I have terrible nightmares, and um, they're so vivid at times. Uh, I just I wake up punching, you know. <laughs> I, want, I, I don't want to go back to sleep because I don't want to get back in the dream. Um, and there's just a lot of spirits out there shouting things at us, and those spirits know things about you and your wife. And so if you've got something on your heart or you've got something that you've been thinking about or even praying about, uh, the enemy can use that in your subconscious while you're asleep to, to give you information. So what you need to do is have discernment. And the discernment, remember, this isn't a spiritual gift. This is just what comes from the Word of God. 
Um, that's just, Lord, is this you? And we know that anything that contradicts the Bible is not from God. If we can just establish that right now, then we never have a problem with this question. Anything that contradicts the written word, anything, well, that's not from God. It's just a dream, or it's a lie, or it's um, a harassment or, or, or oppression from the enemy. Um, but sometimes, Rick, it's a dream to prepare you for something. Uh, I know uh, Paula was warned of my mother's death. Um, my, my mom was Paula's best friend. Uh, it's during a time in our marriage when we were going through a horrible time before I got saved. And God warned her. God prepared her for it. So who knows what it is? You said you told your wife and it came true. Um, I, I need to know more detail to be able to tell you which of those categories it falls into. When you ask what is it called when we have discernment about staying away from a place or person, uh, is that called discernment? Um, I think it's it's a sensitivity, um, Rick, to the leading of the Spirit just warning you about something. You know, we, we've all been in those situations where you just knew there was something strange about someone. Um, just, I think of the Apostle Paul as an example. Uh, when he was in Philippi and there was a slave girl who was following around. And if you read what she was saying, she didn't say one word that wasn't 100% true. But Paul was troubled by the Spirit in her. And this happened day after day. And then finally the Spirit of God instructed him to turn around and cast a demon out. And, and he did. And, and it was demonic. So he, he just didn't want to be associated with that person. And it was God just saying, this, this, is, is, uh, this isn't right. And Paul, of course, took care of it. So yeah, he, he was able to discern. Now I want to also say this, Rick. Um, if you look online, there's a whole bunch of what what call themselves online discernment ministries. And they claim to have the gift of the spirit of discernment. Well, there's no such thing. And what they're doing, because it's not bathed in love, is not from the Lord at all. First Corinthians 13 says you can fathom all mysteries, you can do all miracles, um, but, but if you don't have love, you're just making noise. You're a noisemaker. And a lot of these people get an audience online who could never get an audience in person because people know uh, how they're living their lives. And, and, and we start throwing verbal bombs at people uh, because of the things that these online discernment ministries indicate. So it's not a gift of the Spirit. Discernment in and of itself is a good thing it's a good gift from God, but it's not a gift like tongues is a gift or like uh, encouragement is a gift or any of the other gifts that are listed in our Bible. So I think we've got to be really careful about the definition of the word, Rick, when we talk about those things. Um, I tell people always to pay attention if the Spirit is sort of sending out signals of warning about uh, things or people or situations. Um, be sensitive to the Spirit and then take those matters to prayer. I'll say one more thing about discernment, Rick. It is impossible to have discernment if, in fact, you're not a student of your Bible. It's that simple. Uh, it's a blanket statement that I can make. It is impossible to be discerning, to have discernment, if you don't know what the Word of God says. So that's really important. Uh, I've had people come to me and say, well, I have the gift of discernment. And then as I would ask them some questions to try to get an idea of where they're coming from, what do they mean, what they usually mean is God tells me stuff about people. That is not a gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is always looking in. The unholy spirit is looking out. And we need to be careful of people who think that God tells them stuff about other people. So, Rick, good question. Thank you very, very much. And we had that conversation that lasted uh, about an hour and 30 minutes, I think, this past Saturday. And something we want to know, and a lot of times as Christians, 
we um, you know we 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 just sort of parrot what other people say, and discernment has come has become rather a sort of a catchphrase in the church, and and we think, well, God's given me that gift. We have to be careful about that. Rudy writes this also from our email inbox. My wife and I heard a topical message about the wife being a heart of the home. I thought um, about the Bible saying that the woman uh, may be the weaker vessel. It seems like a contradiction. Can you please explain the both? Thank you. Rudy, a couple of things. Um, uh, I think probably, and I'm only going to guess, that's one of the reasons I don't like to do topical messages, but... um, um, I, I probably guess that the, the the pastor there was saying that the wife is the uh, more emotional or the more compassionate or the more empathetic. Uh, I hope he wasn't saying that uh, the wife is the heart of the home because, you know, she sets the temperature. That shouldn't be the case in a Christian home. However, um, uh, I can tell you in my house, Paula is the heart of our home. Um, she is the the most loving. She's the kindest. She trips all over herself trying to serve, and and that just means she's got the heart that Jesus has. And because she's got Jesus's heart, um, that's the heart that we want ruling and reigning in our home. Uh, so uh, I, I'm going to guess that's what he meant. Now I don't know how you took it, and I'm not sure about the connection that the woman uh, about being the weaker vessel. Uh, there's no contradiction when Paul is writing to the church at Corinth about the weaker vessel. It's in 1 Corinthians. Um, he's writing that, that uh, we, we treat her with honor as a weaker vessel. He's not saying that she's weaker, although in context, physically, obviously, a woman is weaker than a man. Uh, there's always the exception to the rule. Um, but those two things are not um, in opposition to one another. So the wife being the heart of the home, uh, if you've got a wife who has the heart of the Lord, if you have the wife, a wife who is compassionate um, uh, and empathetic, that's a good thing. It's a really, really good thing. So um, that's all I can tell you. And again, the weaker vessel, we're supposed to treat our wives with honor as we would a weaker vessel. Doesn't say she is weaker, but as we would treat a weaker vessel, giving them more honors. First Corinthians chapter eleven, verse three, and uh, that's the the point that Paul is making. So, Rudy, thanks very much for that. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here's a question, and it comes from Mary. Mary, I want to give you a heads up on this because I've asked Paula to deal with this on Thursday's program as well. Um, Uh, Mary's email says this. Hi, Pastor Ron. I've been lacking as a wife. My friend told me about the story of Abigail and Nabal. After hearing her out, I feel like my husband can be like Nabal. Can anyone be like Nabal? I can't respect my husband. How can I be an Abigail? Mary, this is really an important question. That's one of the reasons I want to have Paula deal with it from, from the perspective of a wife. Um... Abigail protected or tried to protect her husband. He wouldn't let her protect him, but but she tried. He was a fool. That's Nabal means the, the fool, and um, um, I, I think one of the things that we really got to deal with here is when you say um, you feel like your husband can can be like Nabal. We all can at, at some points. Uh, I have done more foolish things, and God bless Paula. She loves me. And, and even after I expose my foolishness, she still loves me. But there's no reason ever to let occasional foolishness to keep you from doing what God's told you to do. And wives, respect your husbands as a part of your New Testament. So I think that's really important, Mary. And again, we're going to keep this question for Paula. Um, the reality is um, we're all married to fools, whether it's husband or wife. Um, there are many times we act foolish. Nabal, God proved, uh, he can take care of the Nabals in the world. And so if you want to be like Abigail, then you've also got to have a heart like God. And God, of course, blessed Abigail um, abundantly. 
um, for her faithfulness. But she did exactly the right thing. She tried to preserve and protect his dignity, not expose it. And I think respect is something that you've got to repent. Not having respect is something you need to repent of. God, my husband, acts like a fool sometimes. That will not shock the Lord when you say that. He already knows that. But at the same time, Mary, um, when in fact um, you disrespect him, you're acting a fool as well. And that's where we've got to take responsibility. Lord, I'm not doing what you've asked me to do. And usually, Mary, when we get out of God's way, we do what we're supposed to be doing. God is pretty effective at taking care of the fools in our homes, just like he did with Nabal. Now, I'm not suggesting that he's going to kill your husband who acts like a fool at times. Um, but, but, but God wants to work first on you, and then he's going to be free to work on your husband. Again, Mary, I'm going to be talking with, uh, or let Paula address this on Thursday. Uh, if you're lacking as a wife, and that's what she said, I may be lacking as a wife, then the, the response is, uh, don't be content with that. Don't respond to your husband on the basis of how he responds. Instead, respond to your husband on the basis of how Jesus responded to your foolishness in this world before you got saved, and for some of us, even after we've been saved. So I hope that makes sense to you. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Joseph wants to know, why would Jesus cry at Lazarus's tomb if he knew he was going to raise him from the dead? Joseph, this is a pretty simple answer. Obviously, Jesus knew exactly what he was going to do. That's why he waited four days before making the trip to Bethany. Um, make sure he was good and dead so everybody could see and God would get all the glory. But what made Jesus cry? He was looking at the tomb, tells him to roll away the stone, and he sees all of these mourners and they're crying, they're in deep, deep grief. Um, and it broke his heart. In the, in the Middle East, even still, uh, when somebody dies, they, they, they will literally hire professional mourners um, they they understand that life goes on. We got to get through our grief. So man, they just let it out. And so what Jesus saw at the tomb of Lazarus, he saw not only Mary and Martha um, grieving, but but all of the other people that were there that knew him. But but also those mourners. And, and Jesus is basically looking around and remember he's the one that created all things. And he said to himself, "This isn't the way it was supposed to be." And it broke his heart. And he was crying at the pain. He was crying at the fact that humans who were created by God to live forever with God were dying now. And all he could think about is it's not supposed to be this way. Roll away the stone, he said. And in King James, he was told by the sisters, by now, Lord, he stinketh. And Jesus would say, this wasn't the way it was supposed to be. The decay the, the, the effect of sin in this world was more than he could bear. And when it says he wept, he wept bitterly. It's not just a uh, he was crying or sobbing. He was weeping bitterly. And it was because this is not the way the world was supposed to turn out. And it broke his heart. Yeah, he knew what he was going to do. But he also knew that when he walked away from that tomb, the world was still going to be stinking. So that, Joseph, is why... He was crying. Amanda, what type of fruit was on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Amanda, we don't know. We don't know. I was listening. I don't remember who it was. Paul and I were in the car and we were listening to a, a pastor uh, recently um, about this very thing. And he, and he kept saying, it's not an apple. Who told you it was an apple kind of thing? Um, that's the way the children's story is told. Uh, it's an apple. Uh, but here's what I can tell you about the fruit. It was the best piece of fruit in the history of the world. You see, that was the tree of choice. Up to that moment, Adam and Eve knew only good. They knew only God. 
And when they disobeyed God, remember, God gave them all the other trees, all the other plants. Everything in the garden was theirs. Everything was good for for, for food. And, and it would, would have been absolutely delicious. But God said, because they needed a choice. God says, if you love me, you will obey me. Jesus said that. So here's the thing. This one tree. You can give everything else. But this one tree, and of course, that's the one tree that Eve gravitated toward. And for that choice to be a meaningful choice, Amanda, I can promise you that piece of fruit was absolutely delicious. I'm one of those weird people that that I smell everything I eat. I won't eat anything, won't put anything in my mouth that that I smelled first. It's just I've always been that way. I would have walked up that tree, and the first thing I would have done is said, boy, it looks good. Then I would have immediately smelled it. Well, I picture, because Eve, I'm sure, was like me, that's what I picture doing, smelling it. And then she got that close to it, and with the help of the serpent, she ate. Probably waited a few seconds, didn't drop down dead. Adam, look! And he willfully violated God. One tree, the only prohibition, and yet that's the one that trapped him. So we don't know what the fruit was. All I know, it was delicious, it looked good, and it smelled good, and never has there been a piece of fruit like that in the rest of the world. Marcus says, what is the best way to prepare for spiritual warfare. Marcus, I, there's there's not one best way to prepare for spiritual warfare. The best way to, to engage in spiritual warfare is to let Jesus do the fighting for you. And in order for that to happen, then what you hear me say all the time on this program, just be with Jesus. you got to be with him. you got to be where he is. And you got to be in his will. A lot of times there are Christians, and I mean real genuine Christians, and they're not in the will of God. They're doing what they want instead of what God wants. And in some cases, there has been some sin that's broken off their fellowship with God. And they think that just by throwing out some Bible verses um, uh, or, or rehearsing Ephesians chapter 6, um, the, the, the spiritual weapons of warfare, that, that they're suddenly empowered. But, but there's no power when you're outside of the will of God. There's just no power. And so the only way to prepare for spiritual warfare is to make it a point to be with Jesus, period. Because that way he does the fighting. Marcus, I made a deal a long time ago with the Lord. Um, I, this happened the first time I realized, you know, you can read something a bunch of times before it hits home. But I, I realized that, that Hebrews says that he's my elder brother, my big brother. And big brothers are supposed to be protectors. And so when that really hit my heart, I said, okay, Lord, I don't, I don't ever want to talk to the devil. I'm not going to bind him. I'm not going to shout at him. I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to talk to you, and I'm going to be with you so you take care of him. And that's, been, that's worked out really well for me over the years. I, I'm, I'm Obviously, what I do uh, causes me to be engaged in spiritual warfare a lot. Uh, and yet, I don't want to have to try to deal with it on my own because I don't have any strength. The strength that defeats the enemy is dunamis. It's the Book of Acts word for supernatural power. Uh, and the way to, um, to to defeat the devil is to let the power of God have his way uh, in and through my life. But I think, Marcus, sometimes... We think that all we have to do is be able to quote Ephesians 6 or bind Satan or shout and and claim victory and all that nonsense. That's just nonsense. If you're not in God's will, period, If 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 there's sin in your life, if your fellowship with God is broken by sin and you remain unrepentant, there's no possible way that you're prepared for spiritual warfare and the enemy is going to punch you. I used to have, a, as a little kid, I used to have one of those big blow-up clown um, um, things you blew up and, and I'd, I'd blow it up and then you'd punch it. It was like a, a punchy way. It'd go down and come back up, go down and come back up. Um, and, and when you're not in the will of God, that's what the devil does. He just keeps punching you and you keep coming back to the place where you get punched again and again and again. So you want to prepare for spiritual warfare. Make sure your sins are forgiven. I don't mean 
from a salvation perspective, if you're born again, that's already happened. But what I mean is make sure that the sins that have separated you from fellowship with the Lord have been repented of and you've asked for forgiveness and you've turned from those sins and then the enemy cannot prevail against you. He'll huff and he'll puff and threaten to blow your house down. And he can be scary sometimes. But believe me, he can't touch you if you're hanging out with Jesus. Good question, Marcus. Something we all need to think about a lot. I don't want to mess with the devil. I hope you don't either. Okay, I maybe got time for one more short one. Here's one I can do. It's from uh, Xavier. How can there be no sadness in heaven since we know family and friends who are in hell? Um, Xavier, the, the, the obvious answer is that we won't have any remembrance. This is a whole new order of things, heaven's, heaven is. So we, we won't have any, any remembrance of them. It's sort of like God gives us a brain swipe. And uh, we won't remember those people. And we'll be in the presence of the Lord, and that will completely consume uh, any other thoughts. So... Um, there will be no sadness, no more tears, no more pain at all. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the program. The phones have been quiet. We'd love your calls, 340-9585. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program, 340-9585. Here's a question from Mr. Johnson. He says, what was the reason between Paul confronting Peter to his face? Uh, Mr. Johnson, uh, Galatians chapter 2, tells us exactly what it was, beginning in verse 11. Um, It says, When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to the face, because he was clearly in the wrong. Now, uh, Paul certainly wouldn't have done that publicly if it was just a minor issue, but this was a major deal. And in fact, had Paul not withstood Peter face to face and done so publicly, the church Uh, our lives would look very different than they do right now. We would be steeped in legalism and all kinds of other problems. So this was a matter of freedom that Paul was addressing. In the next verse, um, it says, Before uh, certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. You know, Jesus said um, it would be better for someone not to have been born um, rather than cause one of God's little ones to stumble. Now, it doesn't matter how old you are, you're one of God's little ones. And there was some stumbling going on. Remember, the church was um, entirely Jewish um, uh, at, at the beginning, until until Cornelius was added um, to the church in Acts chapter 10. It was, it was 100% converted Jews or, or proselytes, converts to Judaism, uh, who were coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And here's what happened. You know, old habits and old traditions die hard. And so there were a group of Jews, James, the Lord's half-brother being one of them. Uh, he was in Jerusalem. But others, like Peter, were going out. And as Jews would travel around, and and believe me, they were traveling around, and their purpose in traveling around was trying to make sure that everybody understood that, yeah, we're Christians now, we're getting saved, but you got to remain Jewish, or you got to become Jewish. You'd have to be circumcised. Um, You'd have to do Sabbath worship. Um, um, you you couldn't mix with Gentiles. Gentiles were getting saved uh, by this time, and the Jews would separate from them. And here's what Paul's saying: Look, am I preaching? Is my what Jesus has taught me? Does that have no value? 
Have I been doing this wrong? So he forced the confrontation. And basically what he was saying is, you can't be prejudiced. Why would you put a burden on them that we ourselves couldn't maintain? In fact, Paul said that to Peter. Peter, when James' people aren't here, you hang out with Gentiles, you eat with them, you enjoy the freedom, but now they come and suddenly you're a, a nice Jewish boy all over again. And he says he opposed him clearly to his face. And the key there is that even Barnabas was led astray. Barnabas, who had immediate compassion for people. Barnabas was the one who, who sort of paved the way for Saul of Tarsus, who had become the Apostle Paul, to be accepted into the church. And when you start making people stumble, then this is an issue that has to be dealt with. And uh, Mr. Johnson, um, we can be so grateful that Paul had the courage to do this. He wasn't at all concerned uh, about confronting someone. This was an issue that was worth fighting for. And, um, you know, he wanted to be sure that he was blameless before God. And, of course, he saw God show off. And the people were also then um, corrected. So I hope that helps, Mr. Johnson. Got a phone call. Who's my phone call? Got Jim on line one. Jim from San Antonio, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Thank you, Pastor Ron. Uh, thank, you, thank you to Calvary Chapel for providing this airtime. I know it's considerable experience to buy five <laughs> hours of radio time a week. So I appreciate y'all's investment in that. Oh, Jim, thank you. Um, I have a question. I've just been meditating on passage in uh, Luke seven it's being the experience that the pharisee had in requesting jesus to dine with him and then uh the woman who was not invited uh who he said was a sinner she came and uh she wet his tears she wet his feet with her tears and and anointed him with perfume and, and the question that uh, he, the pharisee said if this man were a prophet he wouldn't know what sort of woman this person is this person this woman who's touching him and that she's a sinner and then he later on he says do you see this woman and that always just intrigued me, that question, that question. I, and I, what, what I wouldn't know if maybe you could expand on that. What, what was he getting at? And I, I think what I'm looking at, my own application, is Ephesians 2, um, 10. It says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, mm-hmm. which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And she was, she was, she's his workmanship as well. She was created in, in his image, as we all are. And I just wonder if that was what Jesus was getting at, was it, he didn't see her as a woman of dignity and, and of honor, as one made, but he saw her as a sinner. She's a sinner today. She's always going to be a sinner, and I have no hope that she's ever going to be anything but a sinner. And it's like, God never <laughs> approached me that way. And, you know, I, 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 that's just all over me, and I'm wondering, you know, how I apply that. The last thing I'll ask, I, I don't know if there's a connection with it. This may be a totally different passage, but I, I wrestle with understanding what this means. In Matthew 5, he's talked about anger. He says, you've heard it said, you should not commit murder. Whoever commits murder should be liable to the court. But, man, this wrestles. This says, but I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother should be guilty of the court. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, should be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the hell of fire. And if you're presenting your offering on the altar, remember you have something that your brother go first and make it. But that, that thing about guilty of, of hell of fire... What's it? What can you expand on that? You fool? Is that related to this this whole idea of that? What we're, how we're made? I, I really wrestle with that idea. That seems like overkill. If you ask me. Yeah, that's that that trips a lot of people, Jim. Especially not just that in the sermon, but the whole sermon. So let me deal with the other one first. And then we'll uh, we'll I'll talk about the Sermon on the Mount. God bless you, man. Thank you very, very much. Um, you know, um, the, the, the Pharisees, the Pharisees were always trying to trap Jesus. And uh, they wanted Jesus to perform for them, show us signs that you have the authority to do these things that you're doing. And the, the Pharisees, you know, they were the religious uh, bigots. They were the, the, the holier-than-thou 
uh, people thought that they were so holy. Jesus at one point will say, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And and the people thought the Pharisees were the most righteous of all. I mean, they had the long flowing blo- uh, robes and their long beards and they had the phylacteries and they had the, 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 uh, the, the scriptures on their foreheads. I mean, um, it would have taken an hour to get ready to be a Pharisee in the, you know, in the morning just to, just to get dressed to look the part. And um, Jesus has said um, by this time, uh, it's not the, 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 the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick who need a doctor. And Jesus is basically saying, look, I've not come for those who think they're righteous. I've come for those who know they're not righteous. And the idea here is the Pharisees looking down their nose. And this woman was obviously a woman that was a prostitute. Single women uh, were completely abandoned in, in, in the Jewish ancient world. And the, the idea is that, that they had to find a way to provide for their kids. Um, nobody was going to take care of them. And, and many times they had to sell their bodies. That prostitution um, was the way that they provided and so now we've got this prostitute who's forced her way into this Pharisee's home. And the crowds, of course, would be enormous. And uh, she starts washing Jesus' feet. And he says to the Pharisee, look, when I came, you didn't even extend me the courtesy, the common courtesy of washing my feet. Uh, and, and all these Pharisees would have had uh, the, the lowest level of servant in their homes. That would have been their job when somebody came into their homes to wash the feet. That was, that was just customary. But this woman hasn't stopped washing my feet with her tears. And, and obviously she, she knows who Jesus is and she's repenting of her way of life. And she's come to Jesus and basically... They're saying, well, if he really was a prophet, remember, they're thinking about the prophet like from Deuteronomy 18, a prophet like Moses um, um, is how their, their their Messiah to come was described. Oh, if he was really a prophet, then he wouldn't let this kind of a person touch him. We still have that kind of legalism, Jim. We still know that, well, well, I can't believe people who live like that. And they don't want anything to do with them. That's the worst kind of hypocrisy. And so that's what Jesus was addressing. There wasn't anything intended there. They were simply judging Jesus by his company. And Jesus was saying, look, these are the people that I really come for. And, of course, all this will boil to that moment at the end of Jesus' ministry where he um, 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 abuses them. I mean, I mean, verbally, you're you're a brood of snakes. You're whitewashed tombs, and and so that's what that was about. The other thing, and this is, I think, um, um, something that we all need to understand. We read Matthew chapter five, six, and the first part of chapter seven, the Sermon on the Mount, and it terrifies us. I mean, if someone strikes you on one cheek, give him the other cheek. Um, um, you know, I mean, just if your eye offends you, pluck it out. Um, I mean, it, 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 it's an impossible standard. But that's the point, Jim, of the, of the Sermon on the Mount. What Jesus is saying, and I think to do, understand this, we've got to understand that this was an entirely Jewish message, and it was given to Jews who believed that by having the law, they were what we would call saved. We're God's chosen people. He's given us the law. And because he's given us the law, we're going to be okay. And and what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount is he simply raises the standard. Saying you've heard that it was said that uh, if a man commits adultery, um, but Jesus but I say unto you, if a man looks at a woman with lust, he's guilty of adultery. And the same thing tr- is true in the example uh, Jim, that you gave. So um, he's just raising the stakes, and it all boils down to look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. When you get to the end of the chapter, Jesus is summing up the Beatitudes and all the teaching after the Beatitudes, and he was basically saying, if you want to get to heaven, this is how you do it. you got to be perfect. Or you got to believe in me. So when he says, you know, you kill somebody, your life is going to be taken. He says, but I raise the stakes. If you even call somebody rock or a fool, then that's a sin that's going to be punished by God. That's the, the, the eternal penalty. 
So, Jim, that's what he's doing here on the Sermon on the Mount. So the Sermon on the Mount has great value for us. We, it reveals the character of God. It reveals the futility of man trying to get to God by good works. Um, but, but Jesus was intentionally setting forth a standard that was impossible to keep. And he was doing that because he was leading them to realize their need for him. Good question, Jim. Thanks very, very much. Let's go to Ruben from Seguin on line two. Ruben, thanks for calling. You're on the air. God bless you, Pastor Ron. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing well, Ruben. Thanks. That's good. Uh, Pastor, I was just wondering if you could help me out. Um, I'm reading, re-reading rather, the Book of Romans. And, uh, boy, I think I told you before, I I just love... Love, love, love the Book of Romans. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just chock full of of a, a lot of spiritual growth if you choose to see what the Spirit of God is trying to tell you. And uh, I read the first five chapters like three or four times over, and uh, one thing that stood out to me is just Paul was talking about um, the law versus uh god's god's uh, law back and forth between a jew and a gentile but also he was focusing on righteousness now i know what the word righteousness means in let's say webster's dictionary but would it would it be the same as god's righteousness because i don't remember oh man it slipped my mind it always does that there's a there's a scripture and one of the it's one through five. I just don't remember where it's at now. Oh, mm-hmm. I hate when that happens. Basically, it says that we are the righteousness of God, but mm-hmm. through Jesus Christ, yeah. through Jesus Christ. Um, now the righteousness of God, of course, it would be different. And if so, how how what are the differences, if any? You know, if you know what I mean, if you want yeah. to the standard. Yep. Let me, I can I can do that. You know, we the word righteousness or holiness scares us because uh, we certainly don't consider ourselves righteous. One of the things we have to remember, Reuben, is that the righteousness of God has been given to us. It's not a righteousness of our own. It's a righteousness given to us. It's a borrowed righteousness. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. That's Second Corinthians 5.21. So it's a righteousness from God. And here's what it means. And this is the simplest way to, to, to understand it. It simply means right standing with God. It means our prayers can be heard. It means that, that uh, not only do we have a right standing with God, but that standing provides us access uh, to God in prayer. So that's all it means, Reuben. It means that God has provided access to him because he has given us his perfection. In place of our sin, he's given us his perfection, and he's opened the door to heaven. When he died, um, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom for the very first time. The people on duty in the in the temple could see the Holy of Holies, and it would terrify them. Well, that same access, God who lives in unapproachable light, righteousness gives us the ability to approach that unapproachable light. Good question, Reuben. Thank you very, very much. Good to hear from you. Let's go to Caesar on line three. Caesar, thank you for holding her on the air. Okay, so uh, my question, uh, well, the, the caller before Reuben had a question about uh, Matthew 5, where if anyone says you fool will be in danger of fire, of the fire of hell. Mm-hmm. Um, my question, a little bit later in Matthew chapter 23, verse 17, Jesus says to the Pharisees, you blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred. So is Jesus, I know he's not sinning, but can you please just clarify why he's not sinning? And uh, yeah, thank you for your answer in advance. Okay. Thank you, Caesar. Yeah, what, what he's saying is, you know, the, the Jews, it, it's the same relationship they have with the law. They thought because they had the law, they were okay with God. The same thing is true with the temple. They thought because they had the temple and they were operating in the temple that they were going to be okay. 
And and Jesus saying, you don't understand it. You know, we have a lot of Christians today, Caesar, who say things like, well, I go to church every week. Like that somehow satisfies God's righteous requirements. Um, And that's not what at all the case. So what he's saying there, he says, you're you're seeing the temple. You you can go back to Jeremiah. And and he warns him uh, when he was prophesying destruction. And they're saying, no, the temple, the temple, the temple. And and what they were doing was saying basically that, look, we've got the temple. We've got the law. God is with us. We're God's chosen people. And God warns him to tell him, don't say the temple, the temple, the temple. There's nothing of value there. It would be the modern-day equivalencies are of of uh, somebody saying, um, but I go to church every Sunday, but they're living in rebellion against God. Don't say go to church. There's no value in going to church. What's in the heart is what matters. And that's what he's saying in uh, at the end of Matthew. That's the, the place where he calls them snakes and uh, whitewashed tombs, you know, uh, rotting flesh on the inside, but uh, painted and looking beautiful on the outside. And that's what he's accusing the Pharisees of. Good question. Let's go to Milton on line one from New Brunfels. Milton, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Uh, thank you, Ron, for uh, accepting my call. I mm-hmm. listen to y'all all the time. Thank you. But today I was moved by the question on what kind of fruit that was in the garden. Uh, this is my personal observation. Okay. Uh, Adam and Eve, when they had sinned, they made clothing of a certain leaf. All righty, keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. All right. The last week of Christ, where he went to the temple daily. Yep. To, to preach unto the scribes, Pharisees, and all the other hypocrites. And then on his last day, here he comes back to the temple mm-hmm. in the morning. And what does he do? He curses the fig tree. Yeah. But how many days has he passed by that tree going and coming to teach in the temple? And this is his last day. Personal opinion. Last day. What's he going to do? He is going to pay the sacrifice for the fall of man. And the thing that caused the fall, that tree of knowledge, the way it seems, it was the fig tree. So if Christ is going to hang on the cross that very night in the mornings, then he is going to eliminate the thing that caused the fall. Now, that's my personal opinion. I, I think I, it's worthy to look into. I do, too. I, I, I um, um, you know, I, I teach a course on the triumphal entry um, once a year, and um, I, always, I always make a big deal out of the fig tree. Um, uh, it is very, very possible, maybe even likely, that the that one tree was a fig tree. Now, th- th- those who would disagree with you, Milton, would say, "Well, fig trees grow all over Israel," and that's true. So, so we don't know for sure, but it's very possible that that fruit was a fig. Um, I think, and this is my personal opinion. Um, that Jesus was giving his disciples an action sermon illustration on that fig tree. Um, he was hungry. It was early in the morning. The fig tree was in leaf. And um, um, usually, not always, obviously, but usually when a fig tree is in leaf, even though it wasn't the season for figs, and the gospel accounts are quick to point that out, um, um, usually when you see leaves, there's also figs. Jesus just wanted breakfast. And so he would go up to the fig tree and he would root around in it looking for some figs. And when he found none, uh, he cursed it. And when I say sermon uh, action illustration, I think there's a couple things going on. I personally agree with you, Milton, that he went uh, in his mind and heart, went right back into the garden. Um, When uh, Adam, where art thou, Adam, and Adam and Eve were trying to cover their nakedness with a fig leaf, which, by the way, would be one of the most uncomfortable things ever. Paul and I, we had a fig tree in our backyard for a long time. Um, that's not a comfortable, that's sort of like the insanity of sin. 
Um, but I think Jesus looked at that fig tree, and I think his mind and heart raced right back to the garden and said that this is this is where it all began, a fig leaf trying to cover. But I think there was a little more. I think when um, he that the day before he comes into Jerusalem and he sees all the people lying in the street shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, <clears throat> it looked like the people were welcoming Jesus. They knew that was the day he was coming. Uh, he fulfilled the prophecy coming in on the, uh, the a colt, the foal of a donkey. Um, they knew that was the Messiah day. And yet they rejected him because they didn't want him. So it looked like they accepted him. The disciples would have been encouraged, oh Lord, they love us. But it wasn't. Then he would have gone to the temple. The temple, the house of God. He said, you've made my father's house a house of prayer. You've turned it into a den of thieves. So it looked like a temple of God, but in fact it wasn't. And then, of course, you got the Pharisees, the, the, the Pharisees who looked like the religious leaders who were supposed to be representing God, and they weren't. And I think Jesus basically told his disciples, this is the straw. This is the straw that broke the camel's back. And, and, and he, with that illustration, gave them a, a demonstration of what's going to happen. My final thought on this, Milton, is that um, the, the, the fig tree was a biblical symbol for Israel. And Jesus had just said the day before, um, I came to my own and my own received me not. And uh, uh, fulfilling the prophecy. And I think that was just a, a, a sermon illustration. It says, this is the future of Israel. And, of course, that's been their future to this day. Great thoughts, Milton. I love the way you thought processed that through your mind and heart. Hey, thanks for tuning in. We are out of time on this Tuesday afternoon. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Uh, Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.